This evening, I'd like to have you turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes 5, our text will be verses 8 through 20. What is life like under the sun? There was a lot of sun today, I believe. That was pretty warm, hot, as a matter of fact. But it's not about the weather that Solomon deals with the issue of what is under the sun. That is a term that he uses to point out the fact that man without God lives their lives in complete vanity. And when I say that, I say that based on the statement that, uh, that he makes at the very onset of this book. When he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. If we live our lives under the sun without God, everything is meaningless. It is useless. It is empty and worthless. Now, I know that some would beg to differ with that. I mean, there's always the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> but you didn't expect me to throw that out there. It's all of those things, you know, that people have in their minds, you know, that that's what the world is all about, and that's what, you know, life is all about. Dr. Pepper, you know, whatever. Coke, it's the real thing. You wonder where, where the yellow went when you brush your teeth with Pepsodent. You know, that kind of thing. It's, we, we, we've been so moved in, a, in, in this world to think that there's ways for us to really enjoy and appreciate life under the sun, but without God. You see, Jesus Christ changes everything. Jesus changed everything for us. Life became worth living. We better understood the process of life that actually includes death. And a question that came out of all of that was, is life worth living? It is only worth living if it is lived for God and for Christ. Because no matter what we face in this, in this world, as believers in Jesus Christ, no matter what we face, we have to get beyond the, you know, the, the hype of, Oh, listen, every believer in Jesus Christ needs to, needs to have everything that they want. You know, it needs to, you know, go for the gusto and get everything that they need in this life, and you should get it because you're a child of God kind of thing. There are many Christians that went before us that had nothing, but they had eternal life in Jesus Christ. 
and they had a hope. The people that we see in the news today, in whatever city where people are protesting, I'm not saying that they don't have some, something valid to protest, if in fact they had something valid to protest. What I'm saying is that as they continue on and find one more thing and one more thing and one more thing, all we see is vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And hopeless, hopefulness is gone. Hope is gone. Help, where is it going to come from? So many people today have been expecting the government to, to take care of them. The government has responded to some extent, both to individuals, homes, and, and, and also to, jo- to, uh, to places of, of uh, employment. But is it enough? Solomon has been dealing with the carelessness of worship and the carelessness of words and even the carelessness of work. He comes upon something even greater, in a sense, if you will, as he presses on in this particular chapter. He says in verse 8, If thou seest the oppression of the poor, and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province. Marvel not at that, marvel not at the matter. For he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. Moreover, the profit of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they are increased that eat, of, that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much. But the abundance of the rich will not suffer him or permit him or allow him to, to sleep. If there was anybody who knew about riches, it was King Solomon. When the queen of Sheba had heard great accounts of this Hebrew king whose wisdom and riches, or I'm sorry, whose wisdom and riches were were beyond any in the known world, she traveled to Jerusalem to see for herself. You can read that at the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 10. But what she discovered when she arrives there, astounded her. Notice verse 6, if you will, of 1 Kings 10. And she said to the king, It was a true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit I believed not the words until I came, and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. You ever had that experience where, you know, somebody tells you of something that's really grand and, and you say, well, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. When you see it, you think, man, this is grander than you even expl- expressed it before. I even got to see it. And that's what happened here with, with, with the, the Queen of Sheba. By wisdom and prosperity exceeded the fame which I heard. It was so great. Notice what, he, what she says here in verse 8. Happy are thy men. 
Happy are these, thy servants, which stand continually before thee, and that hear thy wisdom. Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighteth in thee, to set thee on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loveth Israel forever. Therefore made he thee king to do judgment and justice. And she gave the king a hundred and twenty talents of gold. Now, I mean, she sees all of this wealth. And she gives a hundred and twenty talents of gold. And a spices, very great store. An offering. And precious stones. There came no more of such abundance of spices as these which the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Amazing. And you remember back when when God had asked Solomon, what do you want from me? And Solomon did not ask for riches. He asked for wisdom. And God granted that wisdom. And he said, because you have asked for wisdom, I'm going to grant you wisdom and riches. And blessed him. And as long as he kept his eyes on God, and as long as he kept his eyes on the word, and his heart on the word of God, and brought the people to that understanding of the importance of seeing that, he blessed them all. He blessed that kingdom. But the tragedy of this account is that not long after this visit, Solomon's heart was turned from the Lord. We've talked about that already in our study of Ecclesiastes. His heart was turned from the Lord. Corruption, corruption at the highest level, had set into the kingdom that had been so blessed by God. Think for just a moment of the northern kingdom when the the kingdoms later on split. Remember, they, they they were very wealthy. The northern kingdom that wasn't even established in the knowledge of God. They built up their wisdom. They, or I should say they built up their treasures. But then they began to lose them. And then they lost complete sight of God. And then God judged them. Think about that for just a moment. But it, was, it began corrupt. The northern kingdom began corrupt. But not Solomon's kingdom. He had begun to focus more on the gift than on the giver. He began began to focus more on the gift than on the giver. And so as as the preacher now in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, from firsthand experience, had not only observed what constituted careless worship, that's what we saw at the beginning of this chapter, But he also saw corrupt wisdom in government. And he also would see the frustrations of wealth. You know, it is said that about 200 years ago, the tomb of the great conqueror Charlemagne was open. The sight that the workmen saw was startling to them. There was a body in a sitting position, clothed in the most elaborate kingly garments, with a scepter in his bony hand, 
and on his knee lay the holy scriptures with a cold, lifeless finger pointing to Mark 8, 36, that says, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? In seeking to assess the value of life, Solomon would again look at life under the sun to awaken his readers to the emptiness of riches without acknowledging the giver of those riches. So as the preacher, which he calls himself at the beginning of this book, he now deals with three things. The perversion of government, which we'll see in verses 8 and 9. And you'll get these later, so you don't have to try to write them all down at once. The preoccupation with greed, verses 10 through 12. And the possession of God over gain, verses 13 through 20. So let's first look at the perversion of government. And that's in verses 8 and 9, so let's go back there. And Solomon says, If thou seest the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province. Marvel not at the matter. You know what that means? Don't be surprised. For he that is higher than the highest regardeth. God is watching. And there be higher than they. There would be those that would watch the corruption from other nations, other leaders, even within the nation. But God would oversee it all. God will see it all. This is why God judges, and he judges fairly, and he judges righteously. And there be higher than they. Moreover, the profit of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. I'll explain that in a moment. Corruption isn't a new theme in the book of Ecclesiastes. Consider these verses. Go back to chapter 3, verse 16. There it says, And moreover I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there. And the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. So Solomon had already seen corruption in the land. If you go to chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, it says, So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. See, when you oppress a people, or you oppress certain peoples, you're doing so from a, from a position of corruption. You're corrupting justice. You are corrupt, corrupting judgments. And we all need them. But we, we are experiencing today the disintegration of the foundation for judgment upon our country, for proper justice in our laws in this land. So he goes on and he says, And behold the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was, there was power, but they had no comforter. Wherefore I praise the dead which are already dead more than the living which are yet alive. 
Yea, better is he than, they, than both they which hath not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Now we've seen that particular statement made in the scriptures. Better that a person never has been born than to see this kind of corruption. It could also be used for better that that person never been born that is himself falling into some major judgment because of his life. But what is new now in the connection of oppression, or I should say what is new now is the connection of oppression with structured government, with structured government. Before he was watching oppressors uh, do their own thing, you know. But this perversion of government now takes place not in spite of the government, but because of it. And that has happened sometimes more often than we'd like to admit. Instead of checking on each other to make sure the law is upheld and the rights of the citizens guarded, they protect and cover up for each other. I hate to say it, but that goes on in our country practically every day. The government was structured properly at the onset of, of the nation through the Constitution. Structured properly. Three branches of, of government. Each one checks and balances for the other. But as we've seen very late, very uh, Lately, the judicial branch of government has gone crazy. Now, we used to think that that was just in some of the more uh, uh, regions of the country, in certain districts in the nation. Now it's reached the highest. The highest judgment in the land, which is the Supreme Court. What they have done is they have gone from making laws properly to legislating. That is not their, that's not their job. And then everybody now today wants to check with daggers in their hands and eyes and with their mouths the executive branch of government. So we see how out of kilter our government has become. Therefore, we see the problems becoming the way they have in recent weeks. So this is using their authority to help themselves and, and not to serve others. You know, when you, when you, when you want to participate in, in the electoral process in this country, we do so rather idealistically in the sense that you know, we are listening to the people who say, we want to come, we want to serve you in Washington. We want to serve you in Austin. We want, we want to serve you in, in our local governments. And the only way to know that they are doing that is that you have to keep checking on their legislation or you have to keep checking on what they say or do uh, in, in, in public uh, uh, situations or public forums. 
Then you begin to know whether they're doing it for the people or they're doing it to be elected again the next time. When you have the third highest person in the land, the person who is two steps away from, taking, from becoming the President of the United States, if anything happens to the President or the Vice President, get on television on some talk show during the time when people are in the lockdown, they've lost their jobs, they have probably at that time not enough food, you know, they're just kind of waiting to see how they're going to survive, because that was happening in spite of all of the commercials on TV telling you to, you know, let's stay together, but we'll be alone together. And all of that going on, but she gets on TV, and we're very expensive uh, refrigerators, opens uh, freezer drawers to show some of these highly expensive ice creams, uh, you know, chocolate ice creams, and shows their chocolate, like, that, that's a big deal, you know? That's Marie Antoinette saying, let them eat cake. Are they for you? Is she for you? I will not apologize for my burning overseeing this when I know how some people are hurting today, even still, even after the, the first uh, stimulus went out. So what is most remarkable, getting back to Solomon, what is most remarkable about this is Solomon's response. He says, don't be surprised by this. He wasn't approving of their practices. But knowing the human heart and its evil, didn't expect anything different from the bureaucracy. Verse 9. Moreover, the prophet of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. Verse 9 would suggest <clears throat> that in spite of the corruption, it is still better to have organized government than to have anarchy. Sadly, today we're experiencing both. But the warning is this. The warning is that power tends to corrupt, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. I know that you've heard that statement maybe a thousand times. But there's a, re there's a reality to this statement. Power tends to corrupt, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. Solomon saw that greed motivates people in high places and would caution that eventually you can't take what you get with you. You cannot take what you get with you. The great lesson of this verse is that everyone from the highest leader on down should realize that the profit of the earth is for all. For each person necessarily depends on others. Even kings depend on, depend on the farmer of the field for his food. Does a king grow his own vegetables? Slaughters his own cattle? It depends on that. We all do. 
You know, to keep kings on, and leaders on terra firma, they have to remember something. They need to remember what we have to remember all the time. Genesis 3.19, after man has fallen in the garden, that God says to man, in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground, for out of it was thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Every leader needs to understand that. No leader created themselves. No leader made themselves what they are. You read the book of Proverbs and you realize God has placed every leader in position. For his reasons, and whether we understand them or not, God is sovereign. And God is just. And God is righteous. And God is true. And God knows from beginning to end what is going to happen and why these people are where they are. And what we find in the next section of our text is Solomon then dealing with the inability of riches to satisfy. Hence the preoccupation with greed. Look at verses 10 through 12. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. I'm glad to read those words. Because the word abundance has been taken out of context many times by many churches. We need to understand it in the spiritual context, always. Each and every one of us today who loves and serves Jesus Christ is abundantly filled with everything that we need for life and godliness through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? That's abundance. But notice the focus of this word here. Nor he that loveth abundance with increase. He that loveth silver should not be satisfied. So you will not be satisfied with abundance. This is vanity. When goods increase, verse 11, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? The sleep of, of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little, little or much. But the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. No matter how long a person may live or how rich they may be, money cannot bring them happiness. In his book, For Better or For Worse, Walter Mayer included this story. And he writes, A rich man had committed suicide. In his pockets were found two items. $30,000 in cash and a letter. The letter read in part, I have discovered during my life that piles of money do not bring happiness. I am taking my life because I can no longer stand the solitude and boredom. When I was an ordinary workman in New York, I was happy. Now that I possess millions, I am infinitely sad and prefer death." End quote. Andrew Carnegie, one of the richest men that has ever lived in his time, 
He said this, short little statement. Millionaires who laugh are rare. Millionaires who laugh are rare. Sir Ernest Castle, the British banker and financier who spent vast fortunes for the benefit of mankind, a multimillionaire in his time, the friends of kings and emperors, a man who had lost his wife and his daughter while both were relatively young, said to one of his visitors in his palatial home, he said, you may have all the money in the world and yet be a lonely, sorrowing man. The light has gone out of my life. I live in this beautiful house which I furnished with all the luxury and wonder of art. But believe me, I no longer value my millions. I sit here for hours every night longing for my beloved daughter. Sad. Sad. Again, Solomon is not dealing with anything new. But seeking to demolish, if you will, seeking to demolish certain myths that people have about riches. Well, consider this. Wealth doesn't bring satisfaction. Wealth does not bring satisfaction. Now, while many people may do this, understand that money isn't a god. But some people treat it that way. Money is not a god, but some people treat it that way. Acquisition becomes their way of life. This is one reason why, you know, we, it doesn't matter whether, well, we don't see newspapers much anymore. Uh, but now we have, you know, internet and every morning, you know, everybody's got their eyes on the blue screen, you know, whatever. And uh, usually if you're someone into finance or uh, the stock market, as it were, you know, then you see all of these letters and numbers. And that's all I can tell you they are, letters and numbers. Uh, Letters represent businesses or corporations, and the numbers represent whether they're, they're worth uh, investing in or not worth investing in. You know, and it just on and on and on. And, and New York City and uh, on Wall Street, you know, there's all this activity going on. And, and, you know, depending on what happens in the country, you know, the numbers go up and where they go down. And, and uh, you know, this, this is a daily occurrence. Acquisition becomes a way of life. It has been said that those who believe money can do everything are frequently prepared to do everything for money. Think about that. Let me repeat that. Those who believe money can do everything are frequently prepared to do everything for money. Let me give you an anchor to hold on to. Psalm 39, verses 6 and 7. Surely every man walketh in a vain show. Surely they are disquieted in vain. He heapeth up riches and knoweth not who shall gather them. And now, Lord, what wait I for? 
My my hope is in thee. My hope is in thee. He heapeth up riches and knoweth not who shall gather them. Acquisition, acquisition, acquisition. Are they thinking that in a moment, whatever they have will no longer be theirs and they can't take it with them? Maybe they've done a lot to try to, you know, have their wills and, and last, you know, their last will and testament made ready, you know, so that they... It happens every day, you know. And we should consider if we have anything that we could leave it to someone. I don't think, you know, if I had kids that they would want clothes from... Walmart, but I mean, that's about all I have. It is that last statement in verse 7, and now, Lord, what wait I for? What am I waiting for? My hope is in thee. And if our hope is in the Lord, our hope is then in the treasure that he says we've stored up in heaven, not the treasure here. Proverbs 13, verse 7 says, There is that maketh himself rich, or there is that maketh himself rich, yet hath nothing. There is that maketh himself poor, yet hath great riches. You see, it's not the measuring stick of the world that matters. The world has a certain measuring stick for, for, for everybody. God has his own, too. The fact of the matter is, with God's measuring stick, none of us measure up. Not one of us measures up. Only Jesus measures. That's why we need Jesus in our lives. Because he's our Savior. He's our Redeemer. And as John tells us, he's our advocate. He's our attorney. Before the Father. The second thing that we need to learn is that money doesn't solve every problem. Money does not solve every problem. Verse 11. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? Actually, an increase in wealth usually creates new problems. Anybody discovered that? An increase in wealth usually creates new problems. Take just for example, you know, when when we're growing up and we, you know, get little jobs and, uh, you know, we're in high school and summer jobs or whatever, you know, we're just making pocket chains, whatever. Uh, I know in, 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 in my day, uh, which was a time when you could, you, you could go out and uh, you know, I would water lawns for my cousin who was, you know, he, he owned some properties and I would water, you know, the lawns and then he'd give me like five bucks. Five bucks! Five bucks! Water this whole big, huge lawn at an apartment complex. And then do some trimming and mowing and all of that. Five bucks! In those days, five bucks was really good because... I knew what, exactly what I wanted to do. Five bucks. I was going to go out and buy 
the Beatles' Rubber Soul album because it was $4.99. I came home proud with my Beatles' Rubber Soul album. Then my mom says, Imyoke. In other words, where's my part? Then I began to realize, boy, making money, you know, the more you start making, you got... And what happens then later on? And you start working, and then you you know you you have a family and stuff, and then you get the more you get, the more the government says, eh, "Come on, troubles, right?" With money, we've all got them. By the way, there's another trouble. An increase in wealth usually creates new problems. Here's one. One is that you discover you have more friends and relatives coming out of the woodwork. Proverbs 19, verses 6 and 7. Many will entreat the favor of the prince, and every man is a friend to him that giveth gifts. All the brethren of the poor do hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursueth them with words, yet they are wanting to him. Which means he comes wanting friendship. And they abandon him. They just simply abandon him. Wow. So wealth or money doesn't solve all the problems that we have. And then there is this one thought that wealth doesn't bring peace of mind. That's verse 12. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much. But the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. In other words, riches multiply anxieties. Pablo Picasso, the great artist, he once said this. He said, I'd like to live like a poor man, only with lots of money. I would have liked that philosophy at one time. I'd like to live like a poor man, but only with a lot of money. You all have probably heard the Vanderbilt name. Well, W.H. Vanderbilt once said this. He said, the care of $200 million is too great a load for any brain or back to bear. It is enough to kill anyone. There's no pleasure in it. Now, you know, that was when, when millions and millions and multiple millions was a lot of money. Now, people talk in the billions and even the trillions. That, to me, is crazy finances. But I think that Jesus said it best. Because Jesus always says things best. Amen? Well, Jesus said it best in Luke 12, verse 15 when he stated this. Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Beware of covetousness. Beware of wanting other things or wanting what others have or things that you want to have just because you want to have them. Beware of that. Because a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that you possess. 
As I used to say a long time ago, the guy that has the most toys at the end wins. In fact, what Jesus said is the guy who has most toys but doesn't have God loses eternally. Loses eternally. And as Solomon said in verse 12, that abundance, that abundance will not even permit or allow a rich person to sleep. See, we would think, you know, we would think, because people have money, ah, they live in these palatial homes, you know. Some of some of us would, would call them mansions, you know. And now, you know, they would they would sleep on their you know fancy beds, you know, that they press buttons and it gets soft or hard depending on what they like. And they got the big pillows that you know puff themselves up or puff themselves back or whatever, you know. And they just press a button and this and that, and we think, oh man, well, I'd love to live like that. You don't know. God does, but you don't know, and I don't know. How many of them don't sleep and can't sleep? Because they're so tied up with their riches. I'm sure that there are statistics for many of these people as far as, you know, those who make a certain amount of money and, and you know, that are sky high in, in numbers, that uh, I'm sure there's statistics that would, would tell us of their, you know, what, what they die from. But whether we ever see them or not, what really matters, though, is what God knows of them. And it's not to say that all rich people are going to suffer because riches are all of a sudden, you know, the bad thing. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. Abraham was a rich man. There are many rich people in the scriptures that were godly people. And gave sometimes more than they took in. But God always blessed And, you know, this brings us to this next painful but necessary lesson. That the possession of God over gain is what is indeed necessary. The possession of God over gain. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 13 through 20. There is a sore evil which I have seen under the sun. Namely, riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. But those riches perished by evil travail. And he begetteth a son, speaking of a rich man. And he begetteth a son, and there is nothing in his hand. As he came forth of his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and shall take nothing of his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a sore evil, that in all points as he came, so shall he go. And what profit has he that hath labored for the wind? 
What profit do you have, in other words, when you have labored for the wind? How many of you can capture the wind? All his days also he eateth in darkness, and he hath much sorrow and wrath with his sickness. Behold that which I have seen. It is good. And listen carefully what he says here. Behold that which I have seen. Look carefully at what I've seen. It is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life which God giveth him. Take note of those three words. God giveth him. For it is his portion. Now you think if, if, if Solomon is saying under the sun, enjoy what you have because God has given it to you. He is saying to everyone under the sun, in particular those who do not know God, that it is God who has blessed you. Whether you want to believe it or not. Whether you believe that there is a God or not. This is mercy and grace. Pure and simple. Verse 19, Every man also to whom God has given riches and wealth and has given him power to eat thereof and to take his portion and to rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he shall not much remember the days of his life, Because God answereth him in the joy of his heart. Here's another point to consider. Wealth doesn't provide security. Wealth doesn't provide security. There are two men actually pictured here in verses 13 through 17. One hoards all his wealth and ruins himself. One hoards all his wealth and ruins himself. The other is one who makes unsound investments and he loses his wealth, leaving nothing for his heir. And once again, we have to come back to Scripture. We need to come back to the psalm, Psalm 49, and listen carefully to what the psalmist says in verses 16 and 17. He says, Be not thou afraid when one is made rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dieth, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. Now, you can't take it with you, whatever it is that you've you've stored up and built up in this life, and you don't take your glory with you. Because, you see, in the overall picture, there's only one who receives all the glory, and that's the God who has given us everything. The God who has provided for us everything that we need. And we, we, we say, well, why is it that there's so many people that are so poor and hungry today? And even Jesus in his, in his earthly ministry said, the poor you'll always have. Did he not encourage them to feed the poor? How many countries today, you know, people send missionaries money and, and you know, a missionary organizations money to feed the poor in some of these countries. Sometimes that money never gets to the, 
to the poor because the, the government that's keeping them poor steps in and takes it. Who's going to be judged then? Is God going to take care of the poor then? Yes, he is. This is a merciful God that we serve. God will reveal himself to every person that has been treated that, in, in that terrible manner. And we know that from the scriptures. If you're going through the Proverbs every day, and you should, and I've told you, you know, every proverb, there's a, a proverb a, a day for every month. You have to kind of work a couple extra in there on the days that end in 30 and 28, okay, or 29. But there's a lot that is said about how God takes care of the poor. But while we're here, he's given us as part of our calling that concern. But the end results are, are soundly substantiated. The end results are soundly substantiated by the Apostle Paul in his first letter to Timothy. And you want to keep your finger here because we're going to come back here in just a moment. And I don't have a whole lot of time, so I'm going to put it in overdrive now, okay? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 10. 1 Timothy 6, 6 to 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment. Paul said, I am content in whatever state I'm in. I know how to abase and I know how to abound. That is what every Christian needs to know and to learn before the coming of Jesus Christ. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world. And it is certain we can carry nothing out. Have we not read that in the Proverbs and in the Psalms? And it's implied in the book of Ecclesiastes? And having food and raiment, let us be there with, uh, there with content. I, I remember a pastor one time saying, you know, I, my, my wife and I, we go out and we, we buy all this food, you know, for the household. And we put a bunch of stuff in the refrigerator. And we got everything into the, into the uh, you know, the pantry and, and the shelves and stuff. And then the teenager comes in and opens the, the refrigerator door and he looks in and he says, oh, there's nothing to eat. Any of you still do that today? We all do it. Oh, there's nothing. And you go, there's everything, but you know, you, you're looking for something specific, see? There's no Taco Bell in your refrigerator. You got to get in your car and go to Taco Bell and get whatever you want, okay? Yo quiero Taco Bell. All right. <laughs> And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, that's a trap, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money, notice, not money, the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after they have erred, from the faith and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. There's one more point that we need to understand. Enjoy life's blessings as a gift from God. 
enjoy life's blessings as a gift from God. Verse 20 of our text implies that the person who rejoices in God's blessings will never have regrets. In the psalm that is attributed to Moses, the man of God, the patriarch states, Psalm 90, verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Teach us, Lord, to number our days. You see the importance here of living life as a blessing that God has given. Let me tell you another story. A saintly man, a believer, who had few possessions but enjoyed the simple things of life was conversing one day with a millionaire. Consumed with the passion for making money, the financier was always gathering wealth, but he had no time to help others or attend to the important matters of his soul. The happy Christian said to his friend, You know, Bob, I'm, I'm richer than you are. I have as much money as I want, but you don't. His wise observation was a true commentary on the bitter fruit of setting one's affection on this world's good or goods and always wanting more. Always wanting more. So let's close then on all of these points. Considering these passages of scriptures, I ask you to keep your finger in 1 Timothy 6, so let's go back there for just a moment. Go down to verse 17. And we'll read verses 17 through 19. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded. In other words, don't be arrogant. Don't be puffed up. Don't be proud. Be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. Trust in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. That they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come. This would be wise for us today as we await the coming of Jesus Christ. Laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. What is the greatest gift that God has given us? The gift that had the highest price ever. The blood of Jesus Christ. The gift of God mentioned in verse 19 occurs twice in the Hebrew Scriptures. Twice! Right here, in our text, verse 19, and back in chapter 3, verse 13, where we read it already, and I'll read it again. Those are the two times that that phrase, the gift of God, is used in the Hebrew Scriptures. And both of them have to do with God's material blessings, with God's material blessings, 
Let's go back and look at Ecclesiastes 3.13. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. Now, the phrase, the gift of God, or one that is similar in meaning, occurs in the New Testament six times, and all of those six times refer to spiritual blessings, particularly eternal life. So let's close with looking at those six passages so you'll know what gift is of great, greatest value to anyone. John chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus speaking to the woman at the well in, uh, in Samaria. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him, give, that's the gift. The water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The gift of eternal life. Acts 8 verse 20. There was a man named Simon following the disciples, wanting to pay for the gifts that they had. Notice what Peter says to that Simon in Acts 8 verse 20. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. The gift of God cannot be purchased with money. The gift of God is purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ and has already been paid. Romans 6.23, the clearest verse concerning the free gift of God. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then there's 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7. For I would that all men were even as, my, as I myself, but every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. That is a spiritual gift. So he's dealing now with spiritual gifts. And he says, I've got my gifts. You have your gifts this person has that gift, I have mine. Speaking of a spiritual gift. Ephesians 2, verse 8, back to the understanding of salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Salvation is a gift of God. And then lastly, 2 Timothy 1, verse 6. And I have 20 seconds to read this to you in time. 2 Timothy 1 verse 6. Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. The spiritual gifts for ministry are given to us by God. These are eternal gifts. These are the gifts that last. So it doesn't matter what is on our bank statement. God will help us when we need to do things about that. What matters is the statement that we have in heaven. And may I, may I say, in the book of life. Is your name written in the book of life today? Because many people may think that our names will get into the rolls 
by what we put into it. But it's not what we do. Because you see, Jesus has already done it. Jesus came. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's a gift. Gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The people that are protesting loudly and strongly and wickedly in this country need to hear that message. Sadly, they don't want to hear it. They took a street preacher and just beat him up. People would say, well, what was he doing over there anyway? Preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. What else can you say? What are we doing as we see the day of Christ approaching? What are we doing? We need to pray. Ask God for wisdom. And ask God for every opportunity to be light, salt, and a voice. A voice that is unafraid, unashamed. And uncompromising.